Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here today. Uh, I want to start with a short vignette about toilets. And hopefully this will make more sense as I explore the themes of these toilets through the talk. So uh, an environmental activist once despaired at the time he felt he had wasted building compost toilets on a climate change protest camp. He'd joined the camp to take action against climate action, climate change, and the camp was a mixture of organising hub for direct action, solidarity, training workshops and part eco-festival. But it needed toilets and a waste disposal system, not just for cleanliness, but also to present a civilised eco-alternative to the watching media and public. So it wouldn't do to have activists trashing the world they were apparently trying to save. But my friend was impatient. The camp was temporary and he'd spent most of it building toilets. He'd wanted to be on the protest front line, taking direct action to make immediate change happen. So this activist temporality is his understanding and use of time runs throughout this tale. Yet the issue of time and environmentalism is often only considered as a scarcity, as in we are running out of time. And actually I think the way in which environmentalists use time is far more complex than that approach to scarcity. And time is as important to environmentalist ideology as space and place. Though as a geographer, of course, I'm going to look at all of them at once. So I'm going to raise several questions about environmentalist temporalities through three quite different stories of environmentalism in Britain. I'm still working some of this through, so it's a deliberately drafty paper, uh, in which case I'm hoping for constructive questions. But if there are massive gaps, then obviously I'd like to hear those as well. And I'm particularly interested uh, in the way in which environmentalists in my examples approach and understand time in ways that might initially appear contradictory. While these different cases might have discrete aims and employ very different tactics, I want to illustrate a commonality that runs across what I'm going to describe as environmentalism in Britain. And so in this paper, I'm using environmentalism to understand temporality, but also temporality to understand environmentalism. So I want to start by explaining how I'm using environmentalism because I'm using it in a particularly and deliberately broad way. And I'm going to incorporate a range of quite different empirical examples from my work which has worked with quite radical protest camps, anti-road protest camps of the 90s, through to more recent eco-communities, low-impact development and eco-villages, which aren't as radical in terms of political campaigning but are very radical in terms of the practices that they undertake and advocate. So for me, environmentalism is an assertively political social movement, but it's, of course, not homogenous or cohesive. And I am just talking about Britain, even though I've done quite a lot of work in Australia as well. I really wanted to focus on a particular national context for this talk. So like many social movements, it's full of factions, divides and differences, but to me, environmentalism can be an ideology, politics, identity, and or a set of practices. And I think it has to be a set of practices that are quite political. So a set of practices on their own don't really constitute environmentalism. So it has both influence on formal parliamentary politics and on everyday lives. I'm focusing on Britain because actually Britain has a particularly vibrant environmental movement, although for those of us who live here, it might not feel like it in terms of progress. Uh, but it includes lots of large, established non-governmental organisations, as well as lots of small groups. But it's very diverse in organisational structure, tactics, source of support and aims. 
And I broadly understand environmentalism is split between the reformists, who are trying to tweak the parliamentary system, and the radicals who want to build a whole new world, a whole new form of politics, society, um, and economics. And in particular, I've done a lot of work with radical environmentalism in this country, and I use the word radical in a positive sense, not in the way in which it is increasingly aligned with extremism. So radical as in they want something alternative and a better world rather than just destruction. And that was a major influence since the 90s, beginning with the anti-Rose protests, uh, particularly at Newbury and Twyford Down, growing into a very active anti-capitalist movement. And it's had very significant public profile. Radical British environmentalism has had an influence disproportionate to its size. It's also resisted the pressure to institutionalise, and it remains quite anarchist in its ethic of do-it-yourself and non-violent direct action. So environmentalism today, for me and in this talk, includes the formal politics of the Green Party, large non-governmental organisations, radical groups like Earth First, but also the quite... Um, well, peaceful, oh, trying to think of the word here, basically eco-villages, eco-communities, those who are creating alternatives but might no longer be directly involved in activism. Crucially in Britain, these two people are friends and these people have emerged from the same movement. So some remain in the radical activism and others go and build alternatives. And this is Will cleaning the eggs for his veggie box in an off-grid eco-community. So there are strong similarities between what might seem actually quite separate environmental movements. And I would say the environmental movement has quite a lot of resources and influence, media attention and membership, but there were also large parts that are still quite marginalised. And for any of those who have been following the uh, actions of anarchists in Bristol that are very loosely aligned to some of the very radical environmental movement, you can see that marginalisation in terms of how they're being represented as terrorists. So all these groups are assertively political and they're advocating social, economic or political change. And it doesn't include environmental management or conservation. So it includes quite a political change to society. Now in terms of how I want to understand temporality, obviously it's been understood in numerous ways and being shaped by many different forces. And we can just think of the way in which Time is understood through culture, nature, economics or history in very different and often contested ways. And of course, as a geographer, I'm always understanding temporality through the lens of space and place. So I'm particularly interested in time as a form of social change. And that's kind of the basic approach that I'm taking today. And I think there are three themes in the current debates around temporalities that are particularly useful for understanding environmentalists. The first is the experience of time is particularly shaped by our anticipation of the future. So in other words, how humans project or are propelled towards the future. We live in large part in anticipation of that future. And as I'll demonstrate, this relationship with the future is writ large in environmental discourses and practices and fundamentally shapes a lot of environmentalism in Britain. Second is the concept of non-liliarity. So time is no longer considered a linear progression of the past, present and future, although interestingly we still use these terms a great deal when we talk about time, even when we're talking about non-linear time. 
So rather, I consider time is unstable, continuously being made, and non-linear. And I think non-linearity of time is a useful way to understand both social and nature's time. So I'm particularly interested in the interplay between time as social change, but also environmentalists are particularly concerned with nature's time. So change can be non-linear in physical systems just as much as social processes. A small change in, for example, river flow speed can become amplified to trigger a response out of proportion, a jump in the system change. So the whole character of a system can change if a threshold is crossed. Therefore, vulnerability to major change is dependent on where the threshold is. It's not necessarily in relation to the initial impact or the initial action. So non-linearity can lead to chaotic outcomes. And this, of course, is one of the big fears about climate change, that although we can estimate all the different uh, changes that might happen, we can't necessarily understand their impact in the broader scale. So time can be understood both in relation to nature and society as multiple rhythms, moments of continuity and moments of discontinuity, or morphologies of social time. So we can't expect that things will carry on in a, a particular pace in the future, that actually change will be non-linear. And finally, a theme that's particularly useful when looking at environmentalist time and nature's temporalities and how environmentalists interpret these and use these in their understanding of time and change. So plants, seasons, light and climate all create and shape time. And Bryce says we can learn to be greater affected by these. So he does a really interesting project looking at how time was understood by those who were growing grapes for winemaking and how they changed their concept of time to be more in tune with nature's time or agricultural time. However, nature does not have a stable equilibrium. So it's not that nature's time is somehow pure and stable and everything's going to balance perfectly. Rather, it has multiple stable states which nature oscillates between. So one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is the concept that we can somehow create a view of the world where we can be stable and keep things as they are. And it's something environmentalists often allude to or try and create. Instead, for example, a grassland is just as stable without vegetation as it is when it has abundant vegetation. So a grassland has two stable states which it oscillates between. And this is because temporalities are non-linear and thresholds might be hidden. And so we cannot always know when major change will occur. But actually, as I said, often environmentalists try to hold on to nature as a stable thing, as an equilibrium which they can help create. So I want to pull some of these themes out by looking at three stories of time. The first I want to look at eco-communities, particularly the collection of water. It's a very slow daily practice on a community down in Devon. Secondly, I want to look at transition towns and understand the concept of preparing for the future and what that really means. And then finally, a bit, bit more of a look at radical direct action through the camps for climate action that happened in the early part of this century. In terms of methodology, these stories come from 20 years of working with environmental groups, always in a qualitative methodology, participatory and possible I actually began doing far more participatory work and basically as I aged in academia, did less. Rights and wrongs of that can be discussed. However, 
um, I try and do quite involved qualitative work with um, the groups themselves, do interviews, photographs and field diaries. But it's only in hindsight that I've really started looking at the temporalities. So in some ways I'm looking back at old field work and trying to reinterpret it. Again, I just want to be honest here with where I'm at in this uh, particular work. So the first story is about collecting water. And I think there are particular time-space complexities in living in a low-impact lifestyle and in the material things implicated in such practices. So I want to focus on land matters, which is quite a radical eco-community in Devon. It's on 42 acres near Totnes. It's collectively owned and lived on by a dozen adults and their children. It's a permaculture lifestyle, so the whole plot is structured around permaculture, a purposely designed village green, um, growing their own food, being self-sufficient, and having as minimal impact on the environment as possible. Their planning permission only allows temporary construction, so although they're legally on the land, unlike a lot of the other groups I've worked with, they can't build anything permanent. So a lot of their systems and structures are quite basic. They live in benders, which are basically canvas-covered tents. They're a bit more secure than tents, but not much warmer. Uh, there's a yurt, and there's some kind of bits in between and a wooden roundhouse. Most dwellings, as you can see in the back of this picture, have their own photovoltaic cell. So they, sell it, they generate their own electricity but all toilets, bathrooms and water facilities are communal and you have to travel across the site to get your water and to use the bathroom and toilet. All the water comes from this one borehole, 300-foot borehole, uh, which is extracted using a donated hand pump. The hand pump used, replaced a fossil fuel generator, so it used to be a lot easier to get the water up and out of the borehole, but they didn't like using the fossil fuels. So they've actually changed the system to be a hand pump. So the process of getting the water, this is Josh showing me how it works, is you take a container all the way across the field, you pump it out and you take it all the way back. And this water has to be for everything, for cleaning, for drinking, for washing, for cooking. So it's quite a slow and laborious process. So life at land matters is purposely and deliberately slow. This is what they've chosen to do, and they've rejected faster methods. So just to focus on this quote, this is from the Land Matters website. They describe how they spend their time. Our lives are filled with gardening, bringing up children, animal care, processing firewood, managing woodlands, pumping water, hosting volunteers and visitors, holding consensus meetings, which take ages, maintaining and building structures, running courses and events, fixing things, maintaining solar and wind power, administrating the needs of the co-op, and gently managing the pastures and ancient hedgerows. Everything here takes much longer to accomplish than you might expect because we're totally off-grid and we walk distances between the facilities. Here they describe a lot of tasks that actually a lot of us no longer do, either by hand or at all. So even in terms of fixing our own houses, we increasingly hire others to do this for us. So it's a real return to everything being slow and manual and deliberately that they are in control of it. So in this example, time is relished and carefully used for slow manual jobs. It's a classic example of the back-to-the-land movement, of chosen simplicity of slowing down the pace of life. Halfakri has categorised much of the British back-to-land movement as having this 
huge nostalgia for a past rural idyll that is hugely romanticised and also largely inaccurate, but is being propagated quite effectively from these communities like Landmatters. That we can reclaim the past, that we can recreate a past without fossil fuels, and that this slow life will be environmentally and personally much better for us. Some of these eco-communities go a lot further. So at Tinker's Bubble in Somerset, they reject all fossil fuel, because it's land matters, some of them have cars, but at Tinker's Bubble, they reject all fossil fuel, and they rely on a horse to move items up the hill to where the dwellings are and to plough their fields. So they're really trying to recreate uh, their, their imagination of the past. And Land Matters is also very much about scale, or focusing on the place of the community. So they intend to get everything they need from that place. Of course, in reality, it doesn't quite work. So when I did my fieldwork there, actually several people were commuting to Totnes to work in the health food shop. But the idea is that they're going to live off the land in entirety. So they want to live by nature's time, agricultural time, working with plant and seasonal temporalities, while simultaneously seeking to stabilise and find an equilibrium against the threats of climate change. And once I've told the other two stories, I want to come back to how these stories overlap or contradict each other. So the second example uh, I want to use, a transitions town. Quite a famous environmental initiative now. Uh, began in Ireland, quickly spread across the world, and it's a very planned and methodical approach to the threats of energy scarcity and peak oil. So when it first started, it wasn't really talking about climate change, very much focused on energy. And it advocates working with communities to develop an energy descent plan that, once implemented, will prepare that place for the future. So the transition movement, is, as it's also known, is about identifying realistic, socially acceptable, hopeful, but actually quite incremental changes that will enable communities to adapt to the perceived future changes that are coming. But it's actually about taking control of time. So planning, and therefore they can avoid any shocks coming. These changes are planned through a compulsory 12-step programme. Uh, what's perhaps most interesting is that despite these 12 steps being implemented by different communities, they tend to come up with the same solutions. And really the aim of these 12-step programmes are to create a vision for a happy low-carbon living future. So actually, the future in transition towns is quite certain. It's not that detailed, but it's certain. It's closed. Uh, the vision uh, is quite homogenous. And you can see it here in the picture. So this is the past we're trying to avoid with supermarkets and cars. And the future is very much about growing your own veggies and having a nice community and being very happy and knowing everyone where you live. So it's quite a closed future, even if it's a kind of interim vision. So it's not quite a full utopian vision of transformation. So using these 12 steps, transition towns are trying to avoid major shocks. They're trying to avoid what they fear is coming in the future. It's got a complicated relationship to the status quo. It's been accused of being quite reformist. They're neither trying to reject the neoliberal current status but they're also assuming in the future that it won't be there. So they're tweaking capitalism while also assuming capitalism will destroy itself as energy peaks. So the transition movement's been critiqued for being apolitical and naive, but actually some of its fundamental assumptions rest on the idea that society will change with them. 
that when peak oil happens, everyone will have to adjust and they will follow the plan that Transition Town has developed, despite it being very white and middle class. So while there's this local sense of urgency, so one of the sayings is, act here collectively now, so it's very much driven about, do it now, we've got to start, there's simultaneously time to plan for the future. So we've got to do it now, there's a real urgency, but by the way, you've got time for a 12-step programme and to work with grassroots. Most of the activities are the same as land matters, community gardening, food production, reskilling and traditional skills, developing local energy and water supplies and non-monetary exchange networks. So, for example, by establishing time banks, transition towns seek to re-collectivise and re-common community assets in ways which Holloway argues could create cracks in capitalism. So it's both reformist while potentially radical at the same time. But the emphasis on planning, localisation and slow practices suggests that Transition Town has quite a linear approach to time. While change is urgent, there's still time to prepare. And the whole movement is premised on planning to avoid those shocks. So actually, if we prepare, we can have continuity. We can avoid those thresholds of peak oil. We can have non-linearity. So we can avoid the chaos of climate change. And finally, a bit of a different example is radical direct action against the climate change movement. This is a really loosely connected network of different climate change groups. Here I'm interested in those who use non-violent direct action as their main strategy and tend to operate around anarchist principles. So they don't form organisations. They stay very loosely networked. Um, They don't have leaders, for example. And it includes groups such as Rising Tide, Plain Stupid, Climate Rush and Earth First, all the types of groups that the government doesn't like. So the camps of climate action that came out of this loose network in particular were rallying points for this movement, and they echoed earlier peace camps where they occupied land near strategic points, in this case airports and power stations that were considered to have high emissions. So the camps were intended as both exemplars of alternatives, such as renewable energies, those compost toilets that were started by talking about, places of knowledge sharing and solidarity, and as organising hubs for direct action. So they were very much about planning action. And there was an urgency and immediacy to these climate camps and the direct actions they supported. So three of them were next to coal-fired power stations. There was Drax in 2006, Kingsnorth in Kent in 2008, and Ratcliffe on Soar in 2009. So the intention of the direct actions at these three particular camps next to the power station was to shut down the power stations, to completely stop them generating energy. And it was going to be achieved through a combination of civil public disobedience, destruction of security fences, so actual destruction of some of the uh, infrastructure, mass entry to sites, and direct interference in station operations. So at the Drax action, several activists stopped the, the train delivering the coal to the power station, thereby starving the power station, while others locked on to key machinery inside the station. There were very confrontational acts with heavy police presence, and as we now know, uh, plenty of undercover police officers working within the activist groups, um, which I think just indicates quite the threat that they were perceived to have, um, not to go off on a tangent about um, 
undercover operations. And the temporalities of these actions are driven by a perceived urgency. So humans are running out of time. We've got immediate environmental pressures. Time is limited and constrained. So here, time is uncontrollable, and environmentalists are fighting against its passing. The rhetoric and actions of the climate change activists are about acting now, acting immediately, exemplified in the latest campaign, Time to Act, from which this is the um, part of the picture for the campaign, and this is in preparation for climate talks in Paris this year. And I really like the symbolism of this campaign image in relation to you've got the fists and the world represented as a clock over a silhouette of London. So it really combines that message about time and urgency in one image. And this urgency, this need to stop power stations now, is motivated by a fear of the uncertain and non-linear horrors of the future. The unknowability of nature and hidden thresholds of change are what stimulates both wonder and admiration for environmentalists and sheer fear. So they enjoy the unknown of nature, but equally that means we can't know what's going to happen in the future. And if environmentalists do not stop emissions now, if they don't stop time, then this dystopic future of extreme climate change might arrive. So what does that all mean when we bring it together? And is there something we can say overall about environmentalist temporalities? Or is it even useful to talk about environmentalist temporalities? So I would argue that there's an overarching narrative about temporalities that's common to these three examples. And central to these environmentalist practices are attempt to slow down time and to try and hold on to the present. In low-impact communities, that's expressed as operating on nature's time, in tune with seasonal changes, weather and periods of abundancy and scarcity. In eco-village, there's there's this conscious effort to save a time, relish it, do things by hand, spend endless meetings on consensus decision-making, that there's no need to rush, that if we savour and enjoy time, we can slow it down. It's a partly a rejection of the need to make productive use of time in the modernist capitalist sense. It's a rejection of the nine to five and the question, what have you achieved today? Was it a good use of your time? In some places, there is a tendency to try and turn back time to reclaim the past, expressed as this nostalgia. And the slowing down of time can be understood as a response to the incessant changes of modernity expressed by Harvey's time-space compression. So environmentalists are attempting to resist being objects of modernity, both in quite an obvious sense in the eco-villages, they're rejecting what it means to be modern, whereas climate change activists are actually doing the same thing in the way they practice direct action. So climate change activists are trying to stop time, and transition towns are trying to slow and smooth transition to the future. Transition towns got that quite linear approach to time, which, while advocates urgency, is simultaneously reassuring, saying if you follow these steps, everything's going to be fine. It might take you a long time to do your energy descent plan, but actually, because you're doing the right thing, then actually we're going to be prepared for this future. So it's slow and controlled. This attempt to slow time is a response to a particular type of future, an environmentalist understanding of both nature's temporalities and social time, social change, the future's uncertain, non-linear and uncontrollable. Though this is complicated by the transition towns. So the transition towns actually say it's going to be okay if you follow our steps. 
while the climate change activists are saying it's not going to be okay, we are kind of doomed, really. So there's an urgency to environmentalist campaign rhetoric in their prefigurative actions. We need to do it now, which represents a belief of a likely dystopic future. This future is comprised of environmental systems that can no longer support existing populations with all the social, political and economic consequences that entails. As I said, in physical geography, the notion of time and change as a linear phenomenon has long been disproved. Instead, it's understood that a small change can shift the whole character of a system when a threshold is crossed. And the concept of thresholds is rife through environmentalism, from the 1970s concept of limits to growth, to peak oil, to climate change tipping points. So in terms of this idea that we are heading towards a dangerous threshold is quite often expressed in environmentalist terms. So as time and human actions propel us towards those thresholds, environmentalists seek to slow time to give society more time to avert or prepare. So in this narrative, environmentalists seek to both warn of the immediacy, immediate urgency of mitigating action and slow down time, trying to make time more stable, a balance, an equilibrium. If we can find that equilibrium, then we've got time to hold on to the present and make it okay and avoid that future. There are three points of contestation in these temporalities, some of the contradictions that environmentalists are evoking. The first is this obvious tension between the adoption of slow practices and the urgency of needing to be ready for this future. Using the resilience perspective, lots of environmentalists argue they're preparing themselves by creating alternative systems, non-monetary exchange, uh, growing your own food, self-build... These changes require really slow work and actually in many ways they need to be slowed down even more. There's quite a lot of critiques of eco-villages as already being homogenous white middle class and needing to take the time to be more inclusive and build a more diverse alternatives. But at the same time, if you busy yourself with lots of manual tasks and certainly a lot of the people I've interviewed are very busy and they end up overworked and ill and exhausted, is that really readying yourself for the future? There are more effective ways to prepare for this future, but this would take a different approach to time. So actually what I see, especially in the eco-communities, is a lot of hard manual labour. And I'm not really sure if that is making them people, those people more prepared for climate change, or actually they're just going to be really tired by the time those impacts really hit them. Second, there's a tension between trying to slow down time, even harking back to past times, while simultaneously ignoring existing knowledges. So a lot of the time, that urgency means that people don't take the time to find out what's already known, what works. How do we build an eco-community? How do we run a successful campaign? How can we learn from what went wrong or right in previous campaigns? And instead, those lessons tend to be passed over in the urgency and the need to make change happen now and the idea that we know best. Whereas actually, if they were able to take a bit more time, they could learn some of those earlier lessons. And finally, the quest for a moment of equilibrium, stability and balance, kind of works against the concept of non-linearity of time. By trying to hold on to the present, environmentalists are trying to almost do the impossible. So to conclude, my, this is my upbeat image of the future. Um, and I say conclude rather generously because I think I've just raised a lot of questions rather than answering them. 
Um, but what is it about environmentalist temporalities that's most important and why does any of this matter? Environmentalists, extrapolating from obviously only my three stories, act in relation to the future rather than the present. They fear where modernity is taking the world and seek to slow and stop time so they can avert this dystopic future. They're attempting to govern via the future. They are, in effect, urgently trying to slow down. While this might make sense to those who share their environmental concerns, particularly around climate change, because the threats are in the future and are only rarely articulated as already existing, others struggle to identify with this urgency and the spatiality of climate change. We know, for example, that increased frequency of flooding is only now tentatively understood as linked to climate change. And even though it's becoming linked in the kind of public consciousness and maybe by the BBC News, I don't know if that's the same thing, uh, still then there's not seen as clear cause and effect. And many other extreme weather events occur in places distant in the British imagination or as disconnected from many people's sense of responsibility. And, of course, there's been a great deal of work in geography on how we extend that sense of responsibility. And the merits of trying to slow time, particularly returning to manual tasks uh, as a form of preparation, remains unclear. So while environmentalist discourse is dominated by urgency and a notion of scarcity of time, the need to act and move quickly, their practices tell a different story of time, of slowing down, of finding balance, and in some cases of trying to reclaim the past. Thank you.